Energy prices have been soaring lately. How soon until they come down again? Will they come down again? That we've gotten, we've gotten used to relatively low energy prices for the last four or five years, and that secular period of oversupply is over. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, here with an important interview on an especially timely topic. We've all seen energy prices skyrocket over the past year. For the fuels that we heat our homes with, the electricity we use, and the gasoline we put in our cars. And certain parts of the world have been concerned about simply getting enough energy, at whatever the price, to see them through the winter. Why did energy suddenly become so in demand? And how did it get so expensive so quickly? For the answers, we turn to energy expert and petroleum geologist, Art Berman. Art, thanks so much for joining us today. And happy new year to you, Adam. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's always great to talk to you, Art. Thank you for being one of our first guests of the new year here uh, and a very relevant one. So as I just mentioned, um, you know, I think a lot of people were caught by surprise um, with how, you know, forcibly energy has come to the forefront over the past couple of months. Um, and I'd like to dig into the causes of that for you, uh, with you. Um, now, just quickly looking at oil and gas prices before you came on here, uh, oil is more or less doubled over the past year. It's almost a double. And natural gas uh, back in October was like a triple for the year. It's come down a bit. It's still about a double though. So um, what dynamics are driving these extreme price increases. Right. So first of all, um, for, for listeners that are not particularly uh, into crude oil and natural gas, um, I understand that. And the reason that we're going to start with, with oil is because oil really is the economy. Oil is the master resource of everything that we we do and use uh, and we can we can discuss that in more detail if you like so if you want to understand the price of anything if you want to understand inflation rates um, you know you want to understand just about anything that the economists worry about and talk about and almost never mention natural resources uh, I try to take them back to oil it's it's not the only cause of things, but it, it, it's usually uh, one of the top two or three. So to your question, first of all, you said that oil doubled from, you know, about 40 to, you know, to low 80s. We're talking about U.S. oil prices, West Texas Intermediate, all of that. Uh, you want to know Brent to add three or four dollars to it, international prices. So 40 is way underpriced. And so a double means we're going from you know some deeply discounted price because of covid and for those who know i mean actually prices got a whole lot lower than that for a while but but forty dollars is is just you know anomalously low and so really what we want to be talking about is 65 to where it is now which is about you know 85 let's just say in round numbers so you know that that's a healthy increase um the reason there are many, but the main reason, if if you had to say, is that OPEC and their friends, so-called OPEC Plus, 
were withholding 10 million barrels a day from the market for uh, all of 2020, just about, and are still withholding, uh, you know, a considerable amount. And so in a market that uses just round numbers, uh, you know, 90, 95 million barrels a day, you withhold more than 10% and, and you create a, a synthetic shortage, which was exactly their point. <laughs> Um, and then you layer in on top of that the fact that uh, a global pandemic completely disrupts uh, employment and supply chains and, you know, on and on and on and sort of everything that that could complicate an already uh, tenuous oil supply and demand situation. did, And it's really much more complicated than that, but let's just say it's really that simple for conversation. Natural gas, uh, not hugely different. Um, natural gas in the United States is generally pretty cheap stuff, and even today at about $4 per million cubic feet, or I'm uh, uh, sorry, $4 per thousand cubic feet, or million BTUs, British thermal units, uh, it's still a whole lot cheaper than it is in the rest of the world. Uh, the reason that natural gas, however, got so expensive is, to put it in simplest terms, uh, Europe got a little carried away with their their enthusiasm about renewable energy, and they sort of forgot that uh, we're not quite ready for prime time on renewable. And they closed down all their gas storage in the UK. They uh, they stopped spending any money on, on drilling uh, new natural gas resources. Russia has its own problems with supply, wasn't exporting as much, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, we don't have enough gas. And so they started bidding the price up. Uh, China had a very different situation in which they decided, for reasons that we won't go into because I can't explain it, they just decided they didn't want to import any coal anymore from Australia, which was their main supplier, and put themselves in a really bad situation where they couldn't really replace the coal and then had to pivot to natural gas. So we've got a situation now where East Asia and Europe are trying to bid, outbid each other for cargoes of liquefied natural gas, and the result is that the prices for Asia and Europe are roughly five times what they are in the United States. And of course, when the cost of energy goes up, I mean, everything we do relies on energy. Um, and so what a surprise that the cost of everything goes up. Then you layer in the, the supply chain issues and et cetera, and that's, that's where we are today. All right, that was super helpful, Art. Um, I want to ask just a couple of quick clarifying questions, um, but you did a really good job, I think, of showing that it's very multifactorial, right? That what drives energy prices. Um, there's just some things that are native to the market itself. Like with oil, you said it just had been, it started from a very low depressed base because demand had just gotten so destroyed during 2020 with all the global shutdowns. <laughs> but uh, then there's a, a supply side to it, right, with the disruptions in the supply chains and and some of the uh, 
policy decisions that have been made about maybe in certain countries, you know, either moving too fast to try to wean off fossil fuels or China's extreme decision around getting off of Australian coal that then had unintended consequences. Um, and then the third is there's just a geopolitical kind of wild card, which is sort of, you know, what are the people that control supply? Uh, what are they thinking about doing to advance their own objectives? And OPEC is a great example of that. So let me ask you a question about OPEC. <clears throat> you said they, they were withholding 10 million barrels of production a day since basically 2020. Um, presumably, and correct anything I'm saying if I'm wrong here, uh, presumably they were doing that because they, you know, the price had dropped so low. And one brief moment, it actually went negative, right? Which is a sort of mind-blowing thing to contemplate. So uh, my sense, my, my guess, and please correct me if this is wrong, is that OPEC, you know, created this synthetic shortage, uh, you said, because it basically wanted to make up for what it had lost during that period, right? So, okay, you know, we made a lot less money off our oil for a while. Let's get the market tight here and let's, you know, kind of make some of that back. Um, a, is that true? And B, do you see them, like, like why, why would they continue to, to keep money, uh, keep supply out of the market now when demand has gotten so high again for oil? Sure, those are those are really important questions, Adam. So the first thing is, if you if you ask OPEC, if you ask uh, you know the, the the Saudi oil minister, or uh, if you ask the the oil minister of Russia, you know, the uh, of the Russian Federation, they'll tell you, no, 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 it's it, it's not about price; it's about inventories. And so the world shut down. And oil storage around the world just, you know, in, in a matter of a couple of weeks, it just went from normal to, oh, my God, we don't even have any room to store oil. Uh, we got to that point in the United States, which is what drove oil prices negative. So you, you, you said, you know, I, I can't even understand that. Well, I mean, you do, but some people can't. And the reason is, is that if you're out of storage, you have no place to put it. There's no demand, so you're willing to pay somebody to take it because you don't have any place to put it either. And so, somebody, so you're going to have a negative price because somebody, you're actually paying someone to take the oil off your hands. That's how we got negative one day in April of, of, of 2020. Thank you for clarifying that. And all, all I want to say is you're is exactly right. Uh, but what still blows my mind is that basically the world's most essential resource, the master resource, as you said, could ever get in the position where people would be paying others to take it away from them, but it can happen like it did. Well, and, 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 and 2020 was an absolutely extraordinary period in, I don't know if you could say global history, but certainly modern history where the economies of the entire world closed pretty much simultaneously and stayed closed or at a very depressed level for weeks and weeks, if not months and months. So extraordinary things happen when you do extraordinary things. <laughs> and that's what we saw. But the point is, is that if everybody's storage of oil is full to the gills, then price is going to be low. And so what do you do if you're OPEC and you control roughly a third of, of the, the world's oil supply? Well, you want to you want to force people to work through their inventories. You want to force them to draw those inventories level levels down 
to something approaching normal before you start putting your own production back onto the market. Now, that, of course, has the effect of raising prices, but again, raising prices from you know, negative $30 or $10 or something, I mean, it needs to go up because it's just not right at, at, at that price. So at some point, what happens, however, is that we become dependent on the price makers. And, and, and so they got affected by COVID and by all the shutdowns. And, and as, as you know, and, and maybe your listeners know, um, there's a huge amount of wealth inequality among OPEC. And so you've got countries like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates that are rich, super rich. Um, and then you've got countries like, uh, you know, like, like Nigeria, like Angola, like Venezuela, that are super poor. And so when, when production gets shut down and, and economies start hurting, countries like Nigeria and Angola, they just don't have the ability to, to just go back to reproducing where, where they were. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, yeah, it takes money. I mean, to restart things takes money. And often it means drilling new wells and upgrading infrastructure. So right now, the truth of it is, is that OPEC, OPEC plus doesn't really have the capacity to just go right back to where they were. So there's a couple of swing producers like Saudi Arabia that could add a few million barrels a day to the market tomorrow. But that's about it. And could they maintain those levels is, is another question. And so markets know this. Markets understand this. Markets are you and me and our listeners. The collective, our collective wisdom and knowledge goes into, into markets and price setting. So markets know that we're kind of screwed in a way. <laughs> and of course, longer term, uh, you know, wh where's the oil going to come from in five years or 10 years? And, and, and we don't know, and, and, and maybe there won't be as much. And so that's, that's the play that the market's making right now. The market's saying we need, to, we need to, to boost price to get more people drilling so that we have more supply to offset the demand that has researched. And that's, that's again, a complicated answer. It's about as simple as I can put it. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> all right, so I, I want to get to the long term in just a minute, you know, kind of about, um, when I say long term, I mean, you know, the next couple of decades worth of, of what the supply outlook looks like. But but let's focus just on the next year or two, right? Um, I imagine most people around the world are hoping that, hey, we're going we're gonna to get back to some sort of equilibrium at some point that that felt more like kind of pre-COVID levels at some point here. The supply chain, you know, will come back fully online, uh, provided we don't have another, you know, major uh, variant appear out of nowhere or some other global calamity. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so you're basically saying that right now the market's just trying to uh, incentivize the development that's going to be needed to get enough supply back online to get to that equilibrium point. Um, how long do you think that's going to take? You know, I, I just mentioned everyone sort of has this hope that we're going to kind of get back to equilibrium. Do you share that hope or do you, do you fear that maybe something's different this time? 
Well, we're dealing with with the market that in the best of times is characterized by disequilibrium. And that's the whole reason you have storage, right? <laughs> you have storage because um, there are seasons and times when you need more than, than you produce. So, for instance, in the Northern Hemisphere, in the United States and, and Canada, uh, we like to, you know, kind of drive our asses off in the summertime <laughs> um, and, and not so much in the winter. And, of course, farmers like to get out in their fields and, and, and harvest and plant and all of that, more or less in the, the spring and the summertime. So, so demand, if you will, in northern hemisphere countries is higher, always higher than supply in the summer and spring. And so we draw, typically draw down what's in storage to fill the gap. And similarly, when our when our driving and our farming and everything else slows down because it gets cooler, then we start putting more into storage. So you know that defines a disequilibrium situation. Um, so so I, I I never see equilibrium in in oil markets, and you know more about other markets than I do. Maybe you know may, maybe maybe the same is true there as well. But I think your answer is. When will your question is when will things get back to something approaching what we knew before COVID? And the answer is probably never. Um, that that's my guess. And so, you know, we have a situation right now with this latest COVID variant. Um, maybe this is a you know a, a, a window into the future where uh, not so many people are dying, but a lot of people are catching it. <laughs> And, and and so markets have tended to sort of minimize it. I mean, at first, everybody was, markets were freaked out about Omicron. Uh, now, not so much. But I think markets are, are I never want to say markets are wrong, okay? Because markets are smarter than I am. But, but sometimes I think markets, uh, uh, because they do represent people, fall into the same uh, errors that, that human behavior does, and and what I see right now with with this Omicron variant is yeah it's great that not as many people are dying, but the number of people that aren't working on a regular basis is huge, and if people aren't working, and they're not spending money because they're not going to work or staying at home, then then GDP is going to drop. And already Moody's is, you know, they're they're calling, you know, instead of four percent GDP growth in the first quarter, they're already saying no, we think it's two percent. Um, all these these supply chain interruptions that that boost prices because everybody wants stuff, they also slow the economic activity of countries and industries that are producing things. So. So even though it feels like, you know, happy days are here again with high prices, things are not so good in terms of economic activity. And so, you know, these are these are complexities that unfortunately, you know, I deal with every day because uh, people want to be optimistic and they want to say, oh, my God, you know, we're going to go back to 2011, 2012. Oil is going to be 100, 110 dollars a barrel. And. You know, everything's going to be great. And I say, well, maybe you're right. But that's not what I see. That, that, that's, that's not what I see at all. I see a world 
that assuming, I mean, if, if COVID just disappeared, like President, former President Trump said it would, you know, one day like a miracle, it's just gone. I think it'd take us two years to, you know, as a global economy to work through all of these these disruptions that have been introduced by people, you know, not being sick and or people being sick and not working. And then you got the issue of, uh, you know, who the heck wants to go back to work in an office? <laughs> and what happens to all that commercial office space that isn't being filled? Um, you know, the, the list goes on. So simple answer. Um, things won't be as bad as they are right now. If, if, you know, if, if, if the situation, if we can agree that it's bad with disruptions and uncertainty, but I don't see that we're ever going to go back to where we were in 2019, at least not for energy. I don't see it. Okay. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, it's a meaningful statement coming from a guy like you that follows the market so closely and has worked in it for so long. Um, uh, you know, it's so fascinating because, you know, you, you listed off a number of what I would kind of call cross currents, right? So um, the supply crunch that we've been talking about, that obviously is inflationary from a price standpoint, right? But uh, you just also mentioned a number of things that would reduce GDP growth, which would, you know, reduce the demand for oil, um, which in some, in many ways would pull down the, the price. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, um, and, and to your point, we, we may not get back to, you know, the, the normalcy that we had pre-COVID. From a price standpoint, just asking you to put on your price predictors hat for a moment, do you see these sustained high prices for the foreseeable future here? Just trying to make it, you know, relevant for the average viewer who's, you know, right. putting gas in their car, buying heating oil, you know, turning on the lights in their house. Sure. So I, I think that I, I think we are we are currently at the the upper limit of of where prices for things like oil and natural gas and all of the the products that that, that come from them um, are going to be and and I'll be glad to explain why uh, but but what a what what a, what what's a lower price a lower price so let's say we're at we're at you know eighty to eighty five dollars for oil right now. Um, I don't expect to stay there. I, I think we'll be you know at seventy to seventy five. So you know that's what fifteen percent lower than where we are right now. Uh, I think that you know that is if you want to use a cliche that you know perhaps the new normal. Uh, if if you look at you know at long term energy prices and oil prices and and adjust them for inflation you, you find that you know, something like sixty five dollars is is kind of where where it's where it always is and so if I say it's seventy to seventy five I'm probably wrong by a couple of bucks but you know we're not we're not way out of out of line it's just that that we've gotten we've gotten used to relatively low energy prices for the last four or five years and that secular period of oversupply is over. <laughs> that period of secular oversupply only happened because of the shale, the, the tight oil that got developed in the United States. Super high prices, 2011, 2012, 13, and part of 14 
allowed all sorts of crazy things to happen. And one of them was drilling these shale wells and using all this expensive horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing and all of that. And the net result was the world's oil supply still hasn't grown since 2005, except for this, this wedge of mostly U.S. tight oil or shale. And that grew like four, four and a half million barrels a day, which was a huge percent of global production, which caused oil prices to collapse in late 2014. And we had too much oil for 15, 16, 17, and most of 18 got up a little higher because of the U.S. pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal and then went back down again. That's over. We've worked through the, you know, the, the, the flush period of, of another source of oil. It's, we're not, we're, we haven't used it all up yet, but the growth is pretty much gone. And so now we're back to where we were 15 years ago and saying, well, if demand keeps going up, where's the supply going to come from? And the answer is, we don't know. We just don't know. And the market knows that, and that's why prices are high. And prices got high 2006, 2007, 2008. Let's not forget that in 2008, just before the financial collapse in adjusted real dollars, oil prices were never higher. They were like $165 a barrel in 2021 dollars. Why was that? Lots of reasons, but simple answer, we don't know where the next barrel is coming from and demand's growing like crazy. Okay, you said a lot of really important things there. I just want to quickly summarize and, and then jump off of. Um, so one is, is that um, you, as the dust settles, you see prices coming down and stabilizing at the 70 to $75 range. And so you're basically saying, um, we're going to have a new baseline going forward. And the main reason for that is what you just said, which is um, we had a, um, you used to call the, uh, the, the shale revolution, uh, the oil industry's retirement party. Um, right. It was this, this kind of bonanza of late stage uh, supply that we could unlock only because oil prices had gotten high enough to do so and technologies you know, were enabling it. Um, and we sprinted after it and we, took it out of the ground and we had a, you know, got to enjoy it, but it, it, we knew it was at the time it was finite. And you basically said um, that party is now kind of ending, right? It's, it's, we're still going to pull some shale out of the ground going forward, but the crazy growth rates that we saw uh, are, are not going to come back. Um, so um, I don't know if everybody watching this fully understands the dynamic of that, but I at least want them to get that point, right? Which is we, we, we had this sort of massive, uh, brief tailwind um, for about a decade or so uh, from unlocking the U.S. shale patch. And, uh, you know, we, we've we've gotten most of what we're going to get out of that. And as you just said, Art, we don't know where the next bonanza is going to come from. And, and maybe there isn't going to be one in, in the oil space. We, we, we just don't know at this point. So I, I want to pivot now to looking ahead. Um, and by ahead, I mean sort of next decade plus. Um, you know, in past conversations we've had, you have done, I think, a very good job of letting people know 
about the topic of peak oil or at least peak cheap oil, I'll let you, I'll let you clarify however you want to refer to it as, but that we have in a, in a global economy that is really wants to continue growing at a certain clip, but the energy that it needs to grow, that it would require to grow at that clip, isn't necessarily going to be forthcoming from the earth because of, because of literally geological slash planetary resources that we're beginning to bump into for the first time as a species here. So I guess just for the layperson, without going too deep into it in this conversation, um, Art, you know, kind of how real is this and, and how much are we going to feel this over the next decade? You know, are we going to see oil at some point above $100 a barrel again, maybe even higher because of just too much competition for what remains? That's, uh, yeah, the answer is I don't know, Adam, but, um, and, and, and the, the, the piece that I don't know is whether or not the past is a reasonable guide to the present and the future. If it is, then yes, certainly. If, if, if the past is any guide to the future, then we will see oil above $100 again. We will very likely see oil at $150, $160, $170 again. Um, but the part that's changed since all of that, again, remember I said 2008, um, we got to $160, $165 in today's prices. Well, if you think about what's happened since 2008 from a a global fiscal perspective, um, the the level of debt that the world has incurred since then um, is is just absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> and and you know we thought it was pretty extraordinary before 2020, and then we we learned a new definition of extraordinary. So so the the global economy is is absolutely under a debt load that not even you and I could have imagined probably before COVID. All right, that, that is an anchor. That is an absolute albatross around economic growth. And, and oil prices are the, the primary factor driving inflation. Now, you can talk to any economist, and they probably won't even mention oil. But I can show you a chart, and I will show you a chart in the deck that I'm giving you that shows a coral. I mean, it's not even a correlation. It's just it shows you oil price and inflation rate. And it's an I mean, it's you just can't find a better correlation. Now, we all know that correlations don't necessarily mean causation. But when you find a correlation that strong, you better believe that oil price is a major factor in that inflation. And so my point is, is that inflation at 7% or whatever we're at right now in the United States is another, is another albatross around the neck of growth, okay? That, so, so if, if, if oil price and inflation rate are linked, let's not say that you know, necessarily oil causes high inflation, if they're linked, and, and inflation gets any higher, then, then people are going to stop using <laughs> services where they can. They're going, to, they're going to use their discretion. And one of the easiest things to be discreet about in your consumption is gasoline. You don't have a heck of a lot of choice 
about using, you know, about heating your home, if you use fuel oil or natural gas or, or whatever. You don't have a lot of choice about, you know, am I going to pay the electric bill? Um, but you don't have to drive as much as, as you do currently. We can all cut down, especially since we're not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, so many people aren't, you know, we're not commuting to work anymore. And so, so I think that, that now more than ever before, um, inflation creates a, a ceiling. It creates a ceiling to what level of economic activity is, is needed to grow. And so I'll, 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 I'll show you another chart that correlates long-term inflation rate, oil demand and supply, and interest rates. And what you see is there are many, many reasons why demand gets destroyed, while people elect or can't afford to spend as much money. But inflation is always a factor. And so as long as we've got historically high inflation rates and we're at a 30-year high, then it's reasonable that demand destruction for oil and other energy where it's possible is going to be a factor. The other thing I want to throw in here before you come back and, 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 and ask me another question is, is that the the investment community, the capital is simply not available for oil and natural gas and fossil energy the way it was five years ago. That the investment community has moved on. It has decided that renewables and hydrogen and, you know, and, and, and I mean, that, that new energy is the way of the future. And they made that decision for a lot of reasons. And, and principle one was that oil and gas were giving lousy returns for a long time. And so they said, okay, screw you guys. <laughs> we, we don't want to listen to your lies anymore. We're looking elsewhere. Now, the, the energy sector is performing better than any sector right now in the U.S., or at least in terms of, you know, S&P kind of um, – uh, you know, sector ratings, but it's not exactly like investors are are beating down the doors to write checks. They're they're writing checks for you know for for the the ESG kinds of things. And so you know, some investors are going to come back to energy, but a lot of them have had enough and don't believe the growth is there. So so with capital constraint, you know, you said that high oil prices enabled the shale. Yeah, they sure did, but. But but it was it was other people's money <laughs> that really enabled the shales. And if the other people's money isn't there, then what 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 are we going to use to pay for whatever the next thing is if there is another thing following shale? And the answer is it's hard to imagine how that will happen unless something, you know, just some some you know, some seismic event occurs and all of a sudden investors change their mind. Okay, great. And, and Art, I really appreciate how you take a very complicated, very multifactorial topic um, and make it easy for people to follow. So thank you. Um, uh, so um, from a, I, I want to get to, you know, what potential 
areas of opportunity you think that today's investors might want to consider looking closely at to take advantage of, of what opportunity you might see being there? Um, but before we get to that, those specifics, I, I just want to clarify a little bit more here on the macro side of things. So um, uh, you're talking about, um, you know, caps on on inflation potential debt and inflation potentially putting a cap on on energy consumption or energy demand um and if that's true and remember i said we're looking at it over the next decade plus then you know that's a little bit of a scary world too um in the sense that you know it's sort of like a global prolonged global recession you know or maybe even depression if it got really bad um and you know kind of where i'm going with this is um uh, unless in, in, in uh, ESG, you know, alternative forms of energy can really ride to the rescue here and provide all the BTUs that we've been getting from fossil fuels and then some, right, to, to meet the increased growth that, that ideally the, the economies want. Um, you know, we're, we're potentially looking at this world where um, uh, either uh, you know, we want to grow and there's just not enough oil that we can't pull it out of the can't pull enough fossil elements out of the ground as fast as we want um or we're kind of in this depressed uh prolonged re recessed or depressed state where um you know getting access to the cheapest btus becomes really important right because price is such a limiting factor at that point in time um and so i guess two questions for you to to, to tackle here one is um uh you know, for people that think, hey, alternatives are going to ride to the rescue, what kind of probability do you place on that um, versus the world continuing its addiction to fossil fuels, whether it wants to be addicted or not? And then secondly, just looking at the, you know, what you were talking about over natural gas between China and Europe, um, is that a kind of a, a preview of what's coming potentially down the road in this future we're talking about, where, you know, the country's the various countries are going to be competing much more intensely and maybe much more aggressively for the remaining cheap resources. Right. So, um, as you can imagine, um, this opens the door to uh, you know to a potentially dark kind of uh, a, a view of the future. As a scientist, I. Uh, you know, I, I, I consider myself neither an optimist or a pessimist. Um, just you know, the, this is the data that I see, and this is this is where it's going. So, to address the easiest question, can renewables uh, get themselves ready for prime time in time? The answer is categorically no, absolutely not. <laughs> and 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 I say that. As, as, a, as a staunch uh, environmentalist, conservationist, and one who would love to see a world in which we no longer use any fossil energy. But the physics of it simply do not work. They do not work. Um, you cannot go from the world's most productive source of energy, which is to say oil, to a far less productive source of energy, which is solar and wind, and get the same output. It just can't be done. 
it's not a value judgment. It has nothing to do with which I like more. So just to give you an example, the we can't compare the energy content of, let's just say, solar or wind with oil because we burn oil. And because we burn it, we can actually measure the amount of, of calories, if you will, or joules. You know, how much work can we get out of a barrel of oil? Well, we burn it and we, you know, we turn a piston or what, we can measure the work and say, okay, this is how much, this is how much energy is contained in a barrel of oil. We can't do that with sun or wind because we can't burn it and it doesn't come in a barrel. You know, what, what's, what, what, what do you do with a barrel of sun? <laughs> I don't know what to do. You know, you sit in it, I guess. You know, you get a tan. I, I don't know. But what we can do is we can measure something called power density, which is if we convert the natural gas, let's say, or the oil or the solar or the wind to electric power. Okay. Then we can say from a unit of solar energy, how much electric power can I harness at one time? What's the density of that power supply? And so to think of this in terms of workers, all right, it takes roughly 1,100 wind workers to equal the work of one natural gas worker. It takes roughly 300 solar workers to equal the work of one natural gas worker. Again, we're talking about electric power generation. So if I want to, if you're an employer and you have a choice of hiring one guy at whatever salary you pay him or 1,100 guys and gals, what, I mean, sight unseen, what's, what's your decision? Give me the one guy. <laughs> I don't want 1,100 people on my payroll. I and mean, that's nuts. Well, solar is better. You only need 265 of those for every natural gas worker. So if you want to get the same number of BTUs that you mentioned out of all those solar workers, then you need to multiply the number of solar panels by some you know, god-awful exponent to get to the same place as you are with natural gas right now. And if we're looking at what is the effect of our growth on the planet? Overshoot, if you will. The, you know, the species that we are causing to go extinct by eliminating their habitats, the, the forests and jungles that we're cutting down to make room for our need for food and et cetera, then renewables offer no solution whatsoever because you actually have more land use to get the same juice from wind and, and solar that you do from, from oil and gas. And, and, you know, and again, I'm not taking sides here. I'm very much on the renewable side. I'm just telling you the hard physics of it. You can't, they're not equivalent and they never will be. And, and, and somebody out there is saying, oh, but wait a minute, what about technology? What about some technological innovation that we don't know about yet? And my answer is, if it ain't on the table, I'm not too interested in it because we don't have 50 years or 100 years of the planet 
to to wait for that thing to come along. Okay, I mean we we've got a in my view we have a we have a climate situation which may not be you know I may not be in the same emergency camp as some people, but I think it's pretty darn serious, and I don't think we have 20 years to wait for some as yet unimag un, uninvented technology to somehow save our asses. I, I don't I don't think we can do that. And so that's that's a hard thing to get your to get your head around. But I assure you the physics are there. And without knowing much about physics, I can explain it in a simple way to people. Okay, but for now you just have to take my word for it that I've done the work and I can show you the slides and your viewers will see the slides that show that it's just not an equivalent argument. The other thing that's very important to understand is that we have almost 8 billion people on the planet right now. And given the amount of renewable energy that we have today and allowing for huge growth, we will never be able to support 8 billion people on renewable energy. And so to be very, very conservative and generous, maybe only one or one and a half billion fewer people are needed on the planet so that we can feed them all. Realistically, it's probably more like four billion. Okay, so now, you know, we don't want to talk about people dying and how they how that occurs. Okay, let's let's not go that dark. But think about the amount of, of civil disruption that a few million people migrating out of North Africa and the Middle East into places like Europe and a little bit into the United States and Canada has created in the last 10 years. So you get you know 10 million people or whatever coming out of Syria and most of them going to Europe. And, and you look at the kind of social unrest and the economic dislocations that have occurred from that. You look at you know what's happening in the United States with you know make America great again and build a wall and all that kind of stuff. Okay, now instead of 10 million people, what if it's 500 million or a billion or a billion and a half? I mean, can you imagine the amount of chaos that will exist in the world? And that's assuming we don't get into resource wars, which is what you're what you were alluding to earlier. Now, I don't want to go down any of these dark pathways. I just want people to, you know, to to explore the avenues of my mind, which are not necessarily dark, just realistic. I mean, this is what happens when 10 million people need to find a new home. Uh, say I'm way wrong. Say it's not a billion or a billion and a half. Say it's only 500 million. Say it's only 250. What is only 100 million? A 10x level of emigration from what's already caused great dislocation economically, socially, religiously. I mean, this is going to be a mess. So, so we've got some really, really big issues here that nobody is talking about. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Few people are talking about because they're damn unpleasant. People want a box of hope, and, and, and I want it too, but you know, our, our planet has limits. And and we're we're right up against them right now. And so you know you want five percent GDP, you're you're gonna you're gonna keep going down the same path. So you know back to where you want to go and started for people that are looking for 
you know, if a 5% or 4% or 3% GDP is, is, is the first box you check, then you, you need to create a new box because that one's not going to exist anymore. Which doesn't mean you can't make money. It just means that that party's over. That, 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 that's my view. And if that party isn't over, then the planet is over. And, and, and that's a different kind of party to end. And you know, maybe we won't be there for that, but my grandchildren will, and that bothers me. But nobody cares what I think. <laughs> They're going to keep on using until until they can't. Well, I, I I'll dispute that. I think a lot of people watching here care very much what your expert informed opinion is. Art um, is super important and and, and really quite fascinating. Um, part of the topic. I feel badly that it took us this long to get to it because um, I'm going to have to wrap up here in just a couple of minutes. Sure. But our, our, let, let me, folks watching, let me ask you this. If you'd like me to have Art back on to do just a deep exploration, uh, you know, kind of in his outlook for the future, getting much deeper into the specifics of that type of future that he was kind of just giving us in broad brushstrokes there, um, not to be dark, not to try to push one agenda or the other, you know, it, sort of like you said, Art, you know, I think people are just hungry for what the data suggests, right? So you spend a ton of time in this industry, you know, the limitations uh, and the strengths of the various different types of, of fuel sources that are out there, where the technologies are going, where the economic demand is heading. I, I, I would personally really like to see you connect more of those dots. I suspect other people would too. Folks, if you're watching and would like to, just let me know in the comments section below. If we get enough interest, I'll ask Art and hopefully he'll be... Uh, willing to come back on for that. Um, I, I hate to ask this question because it sounds so mercenary after you, <laughs> the topic you just talked about, um, but uh, putting on, you know, shorter term glasses now, looking out over the next, you know, year or two, um, are there opportunities here based upon the current cross currents that you and I talked about earlier, where you think that there are pockets of opportunity that today's investors um, would, you know, be wise to at least consider as they're looking for, you know, opportunities to add into their portfolios. Um, you know, you talked about CapEx not really uh, going into the, uh, the oil space and some of this, you know, fossil space as much as it was. Is that going to create shortages that are then going to have to play catch up and are the people who are there as oil prices stabilize at higher rates, will they be more profitable than they were before? Don't want to put words in your mouth here, but are there elements of, of the oil, the energy sectors out there that you think are particularly promising right now? Sure. There, I mean, it, it, it's easy to look at these, the, these oil and gas companies. All right. You can, you can get on, on, you know, Google or Yahoo finance or whatever, and just look at, on a quarterly basis, look at their their capex. In other words, you know what are they spending to drill wells? Uh, you know that's ninety nine percent of an oil company or gas company's capex. And look at their cash flow from operations. Those are two numbers that you know that anybody can can instantly uh, pick out for any of these oil and gas companies and just plot them or just write them down or whatever. And what you're going to find is Every one of them is has got a whole lot more cash flow than their than than the amount of money they're spending right now. So every one of them, on that basis alone, is a sensible investment. Uh, you can refine that a little bit, and you know, and I'm not an investment advisor, as you say, but 
I mean, you know, you look at a company like 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 Chevron, or you look at a company like like Pioneer Natural Resources, um, or you know, or uh, or ConocoPhillips, and 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 or EOG. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 those are not you know, those are not the whole list, but those are just four that come to mind um, who have outstanding financials, if you will. You know that uh, they're they're in good positions. Um, they they've got you know relative I mean relative to uh, where they were a few years ago fairly low debt loads. Uh, these are companies that as long as we use oil and gas are going to be profitable. And the companies that are in the Permian, the Permian Basin in West Texas and and eastern New Mexico, I mean those those companies are going to be making money on as long as oil prices are you know, in the 45 to $55 range. And I just told you that I don't see things going that low again. Now you have to be careful. I mean, inflation's an issue and it's, you know, it affects, it affects the, uh, it affects the drilling costs and all of that. So that's not a fixed number. It's, it's going to increase over time. The other thing I would say to look at is, and I don't want to take money away from the oil and gas sector, but uh, you know, all of this renewable energy and hydrogen and, all, you know, new energy, let's just call it that. I mean, basically, the, you know, the, the governments and their central banks of the world are, are guaranteeing their success. You know, this is like Paul Volcker, uh, you know, raising U.S., the, you know, the U.S. interest rates to 18 percent back in 1982 or whatever. I mean, you know, how can you lose buying a U.S. Treasury bond? When it's paying you 17 or 18 percent, you cannot lose. And and so a lot of these new energy investments, simply as long as governments continue to throw their weight behind them with you know with with renewable energy credits, for instance. I mean, don't don't be fooled. I mean, when 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 a when you hear the propaganda that that renewable energy is cheaper than oil and gas. Uh, first question is ask which costs are excluded <laughs> and, and, and also ask how much fossil energy is needed to extract all the, the metals and, and to do all the transport and manufacture and distribution of those products. But, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a mouthful in itself. But, but, but the, you know, the, the, the point is, is, is that um, for now, at least, when, 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 a, when a renewable company puts in its bid, to electric power providers for tomorrow, it usually bids zero, okay? <laughs> it doesn't usually get zero because the way the supply and demand work out is it generally gets a positive number even though it bids zero. The reason it can bid zero is because of renewable energy credits. And what the heck are renewable energy? It's basically, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a carbon trade. And so companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon are putting billions of dollars into renewable energy credits that basically go to subsidize these $0 bids on tomorrow's electric power so they can say, hey, we're net zero, even though they're burning you know, coal and all kinds of god-awful things to, you know, to run all their... Their, their cloud farms and everything, it balances out zero with the carbon credits. Now, carbon credits suck, 
for the environment. But you know that 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 that's the game we're playing. So I'm just suggesting to you that there's there's a dimension here of a no lose a no lose bet, at least for now, as long as the as long as the the incentives are are guaranteed by governments and by central banks and by regs and you know and and we don't care I don't care about about international agreements because these things these are going on independent of Paris or Glasgow I mean these are things that are happening right now so look into those All right Art thank you thank you for being so specific and I know folks are going to want to follow up on both those major opportunities, both in the oil and gas players and in the new energy space. It's kind of like, um, it's almost like the new Fed put, the new <clears throat> Fed and administration put if you're investing in right. new energy. <clears throat> All right, Art, well, look, as we wrap up here, thank you so much, it's been a great conversation. For folks that have really enjoyed hearing your insights and would like to follow you and your work, where should they go? They should go to artberman.com. They should go to uh, at aeberman12 on Twitter. And if that doesn't work for you, then I can't help you. I'm, I'm, I'm very prolific on both. There's lots of free content on my website and I'm on Twitter a lot of the, more day than my wife would like to see me on it. So uh, <laughs> you, you, you'll get the, uh, <laughs> the full flow of, of, of my uh, of my free cash, my, my free brain flow on Twitter. Great, great. Um, well, as somebody who follows it daily, um, you do a heroic amount of work there and, and publish just a ton of amazing charts. So folks, if you like data, follow Art on Twitter. Um, all right, folks, well, look, as we wrap up here, um, if you have enjoyed this interview, would like to see more interviews with great minds like Art, just take a second and support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking the subscribe button below if you haven't already, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And if you'd like help in putting some of the investment ideas that Art mentioned into practice, if you're not an experienced investor in the energy space, um, feel free just to talk for free to one of Wealthion's endorsed financial advisors, and you can set up a free call with them if you go to Wealthion.com. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining. Art, thanks so much again for a great conversation here. Can't wait to see you next time. Always a pleasure, Adam. Thank you. Thank you.